Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the weekly podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. My name is Young Lim. I am the desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Today is the morning of Thursday, August 8th, and we are recording from our studios in Times Square, New York City. So we've got a busy week, and let's go to the windy city of, of Chicago and our reporter, Kaylin Debit. So Kaylin, you've been talking about the ongoing saga of the Arizona-based charter school called Starshine. Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Starshine, which is, as you say, based in Arizona, is a charter school that declared bankruptcy in February of 2016. We've been following it at DebtWire for um, several years. And it was originally financed in 2013 by Lawson Financial, with which uh, some of our listeners might remember is a um, broker-dealer that the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, uh, actually expelled Lawson in 2017 for, for fraud linked to various deals they did, including an Arizona charter school. So this uh, Starshine is a story we've been following for a while. And in 2013, when Lawson did that deal, they issued about $13 million. Then the borrower ran into financial trouble, as we've reported. They filed for bankruptcy, as I said, in February of 2016. The bondholders, who had a lien on the mortgage, uh, expected to see about a 78% haircut, so a pretty significant haircut. That's the There was expected to be a final distribution last year after the conclusion of that. But now there's been a surprise development, as I was reporting last week, where the bankruptcy trustee has filed claims against the former principal and other school officials alleging embezzlement from school funds. And so this is a sort of a surprising new avenue of litigation that that has um, that has opened up sort of uh, possible recovery for bondholders. Wow, 78 percent haircut. That's more like a buzz cut to me. So, Caitlin, what does this overall mean for bondholders? Well, it's unclear right now, but it could boost their recovery past that 22%. Uh, It's hard to say. It's unclear. Partly it's hard to say because it's unclear how much the new claims are valued at. Also, it's unclear, you know, how successful the litigation will be. The bankruptcy trustee attorney I talked with last week, he says, that, well, he says in the complaint that the value could be around a million, but that's just a rough estimate. He really, um, in an interview, declined to sort of name an amount on it. So bondholders are currently in line for, they were expected to recover about $2.8 million out of that original $12.7 million. So there might be another million on top of that, but like I said, it's sort of unclear what the value of the, the fresh claims are, and it's also unclear how long it will take. It, it's going to take time to wind through the court system, so any recovery is going to come in 2020 at the earliest. And even if it is successful, the bankruptcy trustee attorney says it's going to take some time, even if it were successful and it were settled, for any um, for the estate to distribute any funds. So it's going to be a long wait. It's a little bit uncertain right now, but we'll be following it to see if there's some some ex- expected surprise recovery for the bondholders. Thanks, Caitlin. Now, Caitlin, let's go back to you and tell me what's going on with the uh, Milwaukee County pension system. The Milwaukee County pension system, which we've written about in the past, there's a couple interesting things happening that I wrote about last week. One is that they're trying to claw back some overpayments to retirees. That's always something that we follow. It's not a lot of money in this case, but it's always an interesting process. And also, uh, the county at this point, it seems like it's not moving forward with a recommendation from a task force. There was a task force put together last year 
and that recommended that the Milwaukee County close the plan and merge with the state of Wisconsin public pension plan. So we found out last week that it doesn't seem like there's going to be any action, at least at this point, on that front. Just wondering, are these types of clawbacks uh, common? They're not very common, but it does happen. And uh, most pension plans do have a process for recouping overpayments. Overpayments are typically the plan administrator's fault, not the retiree's fault. And they're usually, you know, sort of discovered after an audit. So in Milwaukee County's case, they they discovered this. They crafted last year an ordinance to recoup the money. They hired Reinhard Bomer Van Duren to help them do that. And they're asking for repayments from about 70 retirees. That's less. They originally thought they were going to have to ask for repayments from about 200. So it's about 70 retirees who collectively owe um, under a million. So that's according to the plan's executive director. That's down from about 2.4 million, which the original that was the original estimate they were going to try to get back. So the retirees won't have to pay interest if they agree to pay their full overpayment amount. The pension plan has. You know, they told me that they've put, they've named some employees to directly handle this, and they're really encouraging retirees to come forward, make appointments, sit down with them for any questions. They recognize that it's, you know, it's a tough call for them, but they need this. They, you know, they say that for the health of the pension plan, they need to have this, these mistaken overpayments given back. Well, what's going to happen? Uh, what will they do with the proceeds then? The proceeds ultimately are going to go into the county's pension stabilization fund. They have a pension stabilization fund. They set it up. They did a $400 million pension obligation bond issue in 2009, and at that time they set up the pension stabilization fund. I think it has about $6 million in it right now. And so the county is originally going to pay the, um, the pension system, the overpayments, out of its general fund, which is you know usually how the county makes its pension contributions out of the general fund. And then the um, pension system, when it recoups the money from the retirees, will give it back to the county, which is going to put it in that pension stabilization fund. So on a separate note, uh, it sounds like the county has decided to keep the county plan in place for now. Is that, is that a correct assumption? That's right. I mean, it, that's what it sounds like they're on track to do now. We reported last year that the task force had come up with these different recommendations for how to deal with the pension, with the county's pension plan, because the county's payments, the county's annual contributions are mounting, and they're they're really eating up a bigger and bigger um, chunk of the county's property tax levy. So, county executive last year, Chris Abella, had assembled a task force to try to study it. And um, one of the recommendations was closing the plan and moving new hires to the state's pension plan, which is called the Wisconsin Retirement System. An interesting thing about Wisconsin is they have, they only have three pension plans. They have the Wisconsin Retirement System, which is one of the best funded in the country. And then they have the Milwaukee County Pension Plan, and then the city of Milwaukee has its uh, pension plan. So those are the only three in the whole state. Um, but so far, neither the county executive nor the board has introduced any ordinance authorizing the move. It sounds like it's court. It sounds like it's not going to happen anytime soon. And the executive director of the pension system, who I talked to last week, said that you know they thought it could end up actually costing the um, pension system more if they would try to move new hires to the to the state system. So that's one of the reasons. Also, you know, as we know, it would be a politically tough move to do. So they have the pension plan now has about a 75% funded ratio and a 500 and maybe $50 million unfunded liability. And as I said, it's 
gobbling up a bigger chunk of the levy. So I think there's going to be some action that we'll see, but it sounds like the, the most drastic action of closing the plan is not going to be happening at this point. But of course, we'll continue to watch it. Thank you, Kaylin, for your continued coverage. Let's move on to sunny Miami, Florida, and our senior reporter, Simone Barable. How are you doing down there today? I'm doing very well, thank you. All right. You're going to be talking about the Virgin Islands, and I know uh, with proximity to Puerto Rico, uh, you're going to talk about how the Virgin Islands are being affected by Puerto Rico's current political instability. How are the two connected in any way? So they're really not connected, which is a real bummer for the Virgin Islands, which obviously, other than sharing the Caribbean and a parent country with Puerto Rico, shares virtually nothing else. They don't share a government, they don't share a common language, not even the same federal laws apply most of the time. But they're both U.S. territories, and to put it bluntly, Puerto Rico is a much more important U.S. territory from a political perspective. That's because there are millions of Puerto Ricos, there are enough Puerto Ricans to move to Florida and swing an election, but there are only about 100,000 Virgin Islanders. So they've got very little political clout. Like Puerto Rico, they've got no voting representation in Congress. And no matter how big of an exodus there is, they're unlikely to become a key political constituency in the U.S. So when you get bills written for the territories, you tend to get bills written for Puerto Rico, and then those bills are applied to other territories. And obviously, Puerto Rico is consumed right now with political problems and allegations of corruption, as Ava spoke about. So the federal government is reluctant to continue to transfer money to the island. And so bills that involve federal money for Puerto Rico, if if those bills are delayed, there's a delay for the Virgin Islands as well. So you you just mentioned the bills. Are there any bills uh, currently being delayed? Yes. So there is a disaster funding bill that made it out of committee in the U.S. House of Representatives but hasn't made it to a full floor vote. And about 90% of the money in the bill, it's about 1.8, I'm sorry, $8.4 billion is for Puerto Rico. The rest is for the Virgin Islands. And at least one of the reasons seems to be that the federal government isn't interested in sending Puerto Rico money until it can reasonably sure the money won't be misspent. And when you have former government officials getting arrested for corruption and current government officials getting pushed out of office for corruption, and when you have three governors in a week, no one is going to be that confident that the money will be used properly. So Congress is in recess, but this wasn't passed before they went to recess, probably at least in part because of the turmoil in Puerto Rico. And this is obviously not good for Puerto Rico, but it's really really bad for the Virgin Islands. And that's because the Virgin Islands fiscal year ends on September 30th. Puerto Rico's ended July, I'm sorry, June 30th. And this bill contains Medicaid funding that they really have no way to replace. And so they're out of money starting on October 1st. So the backup plan is to cut 15,000 people off of Medicaid, which is more than half of recipients. And this would be, as our Commissioner of Human Services said, detrimental. First, there's the human cost, people getting sick and not being able to get treatment. And then, of course, there's the economic cost. You're going to have their public hospitals, which are subsidized by the government, overburdened. You're going to have people getting sick and missing work. It'll be terrible all the way around. And that's not the only potential public health crisis that's looming. 
Well, that's not. Well, then tell me, Simone, what else is happening? So the Virgin Islands has been locked out of the bond market for years. It's not generating the revenue it needs, in part, only in part, because of the massive underfunding in its public pension system. So there have been recent budgeting hearings, and in these hearings, you hear things like the Waste Management Authority's budget is being cut. So now it can't properly cover the cost of disposing solid waste, which is exactly what it sounds like it is, and that leaves the territory at risk of a public health crisis, according to officials. And you mentioned, I think, the uh, retirement system? Right, exactly, and that's its own morass. There's a court case trying to figure out how much the Virgin Islands has to pay. And the latest issue is that the government and the system disagree about how much money is owed in employer contributions. The bookkeeping over the years hasn't been great, to say the least. And according to the retirement system, because agencies didn't get people in the system when they were supposed to, or because people took leaves of absences and then came back and things were calculated wrong, you have almost $70 million owed to the system, and that amount of money, according to the retirement system, should be paid right away. And that's separate from the unfunded liability, which is in the billions, in a territory that doesn't even have an annual budget of a billion. But the Virgin Islands disagrees with the retirement system's calculation, and it hasn't been able to provide its own number, even after being ordered to do so by a court, so the court subsequently ordered it to pay an accounting firm to figure it out. And now the retirement system is objecting to that because it's having technical problems accessing the data that the firm's using. So it's a mess on top of a mess. That sounds like a true mess. Thank you, Simone, for your coverage on the Virgin Islands. Thank you. All right, let's move on to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where our uh, news reporter Ava Lorenz is there. Now, Ava, the summer of 2019 has a vi- been a very interesting uh, summer in, in Puerto Rico. In, about, in less than a week, you've had three governors there, uh, one who resigned, one who wanted the job but couldn't get it, and one who didn't want the job gets it. So tell us, what's been going on in Puerto Rico? Well, it, it certainly has been a very hectic summer. As many of you know, uh, Governor Ricardo Rosello and some of his cabinet members resigned uh, last week because of the publication of a profane list chat between him and his closest allies. There was a lot of protest and public outcry over that. Before leaving, Rosello appointed Pedro Pierluisi. He is a former Washington resident commissioner. Uh, and he was appointed Secretary of State, and the idea was that Pedro Pierluisi would succeed him once he resigned. But that appointment was questioned by many of uh, the new Progressive Party leaders because Pierluisi also works for the law firm that advises the Financial Oversight and Management Board. And the government on the Oversight Board have been at odds in matters of public policy, specifically cuts to pension. The government opposes cuts to pension. Well, Pierluisi was confirmed by the House as Secretary of State, but the Senate delayed the vote. Uh, and then using a 2005 law, Pierluisi took over the governor's seat after Rosselló resigned. That was in, on Friday, even though he had only been confirmed as Secretary of State by the House. On that same day, uh, the Senate uh, decided to uh, sue him. 
I apologize, not on that same day. It was two days later. But then the matter went to the Supreme Court. Uh, Pierre Luisi, who had initially said he was going to stay as governor, depending on what the Senate said, he obviously said that he was going to wait until the Supreme Court's decision. Obviously, the Senate President, Senate President Thomas Rivera Chac, challenged Pierre Luisi's claims to the governor's seat because he was saying that Pierre Luisi should have been confirmed by the two legislative chambers as Secretary of State before swearing in as governor. The Supreme Court yesterday, uh, in a unanimous vote, determined that uh, portions of the 2005 law were unconstitutional and that Pierre Luisi was, uh, should have been confirmed by the two legislative chambers as Secretary of State before succeeding Rosselló as governor and that therefore his uh, gubernatorial tenure was unconstitutional. Pierre Luisi left the seat about, at about 5 p.m paving the way for the Secretary of Justice, who is the next uh, in the succession line, to take over as governor. Ava, I've got a quick question for you. Uh, when the Supreme Court over uh, said that it's unconstitutional that Perlusi is uh, to become governor, even though the House confirmed him last week, was he technically governor at any point, even though both chambers did not officially approve him? Well, um, no. Actually, uh, they they said that he was not. They annulled his uh, governor's seat. So technically, no, he was not. He, was he, he should not have been governor. Okay. Um, so, um, however, he left. Uh, they gave him until five o'clock to leave. He left, and um, Justice Secretary, who is. Uh, Wanda Vasquez, who was the next in the succession line, because we don't have Secretary of State right now, uh, she took over as governor. Right after she took over as governor, uh, the Senate President, Tomas Rivera Schatz, uh, publicly said that he wanted Vasquez to appoint uh, President Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez as Secretary of State. The idea is for them to Vasquez, for Vasquez to resign and then for Gonzalez to take over as governor. However, last night, uh, Vasquez uh, said that she was going to stay on as governor and that she would, in other words, that she would finish the term and that uh, because the governor, government needs some kind of stability and that she would move on. Uh, of course, uh, the Senate leader is having a meeting right now with uh, the top MPP leadership. Of course, uh, Rivera Chas, I should mention, he is also the MPP president, and he doesn't get along with Vasquez. They have had some problems in the past. And um, right now, the MPP leadership is trying to decide what their next step is going to be. However, that doesn't mean that Vasquez is um, is going to be staying on. Because we don't know what is going to happen now. There are a protest planned for later this afternoon against her. Uh, Vasquez um, was appointed a Puerto Rico Attorney General in January of, this, of 2017. She was previously a prosecutor with the Department of Justice, and she was women's advocate. But she has had problems when she was the women's advocate. Uh, there were a lot of com uh, complaints that she was not very active in terms of trying to eradicate domestic violence. Uh, 
Uh, during her time as Justice Secretary, there have also been complaints that she has not, she has delayed investigations into uh, acts, uh, complaints of acts of corruption against people from her own party. And of course, a lot of people see her as another a person that is part of the corrupt government of Governor Rosselló. And we don't know what is going to happen. She defended early this morning her integrity. She, was, she said she was an honest person and that she will stay on. There are no complaints against her, so there are no reasons technically for her to resign. But obviously, there is some sort of civil unrest against her, so we don't know what is going to be happening over the next couple of days. So uh, before we move on to to talk about Puerto Rico's restructuring and the bankruptcy case, I've got two last questions for you. So if Vasquez is currently governor, the election, if there's, if she doesn't resign or leave the office, the election is in 2020, is that correct? Yes, the election is in 2020, but she is not planning to run in the election. Okay. Um, she has been she she has been very firm in saying that she's not a politician, mm-hmm. that she's a jurist, and that she has no plans to stay on as as to run for an election. So, but she is she has said she's planning to finish a, a, the term, the four year term that uh, that Rosselló initially began because of the fact that uh, that the governor needs some kind of stability. And last question is, if uh, uh, Schatz wants Jennifer Gonzalez as Secretary of State, could they challenge? Is is it too late? Because since Vasquez is is governor now, can they still have someone else come in as Secretary of State to to overtake Vasquez? Well, well, right now, right now, uh, Vasquez is the governor. She is the one who decides uh, the appointment of a Secretary of State. In other words... She is the one who nominates the Secretary of State, so she's the one that makes that decision. Vasquez said early this morning that uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, the resident commissioner, called her and and, uh, told her that she was willing to be Secretary of State. However, Vasquez has not said whether she is willing to appoint her or not Secretary of State. So... um, she obviously needs to appoint a Secretary of State, but we don't know whether that is going to be Gonzalez. All right. Finally, let's finish off with uh, the latest that's been going on in the Puerto Rico bankruptcy case. What's going on there, Eva? Well, um, in the court side, the island has been busy, even though Judge Swain stayed numerous cases and sent them to mediation. That was about two weeks ago because she wants to settle some of the disputes that are currently in the court, and because she wants a restructuring deal for the central government to move forward. And obviously some of the disputes that have been going on are a, a prevent that. Um, however, there have, there have been some disputes that have been uh, moving forward, but others have been delayed because of the uncertainty that has been created uh, as a result of the fight over the governor's seat. For instance, a hearing today was adjourned because officials needed to meet with the new governor, and they said we need to adjourn this meeting. That was a dispute involving uh, lawsuit that the Financial Oversight Board filed against the governor 
over a law that exempts cities from having to uh, from having to pay health insurance and pensions. Uh, of course, uh, there's also there was also one other important thing that happened was that the court agreed to um, to a discovery requested by the unsecured creditors committee, uh, and they have been seeking to have copies or access to chats. Uh, uh, in which the negotiators of the um, uh, of the PREPA Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's uh, debt restructuring uh, have discussed the debt deal. They want to have access to that. If the court agreed to allow so, uh, that access, uh, and I, I understand that today, uh, two um, monolines or insurance insurers of bonds filed a lawsuit against uh, several Wall Street banks in which they alleged that these Wall Street banks did not fulfill their responsibility of ensuring that uh, the government could pay its debt. And as a result, the insurers have been, uh, have, have, have been forced to continue to pay the debt. So that has been that has, has been the latest in what has been happening in the, on the bankruptcy side. All right. Well, thank you all. I want to thank our participants today, Caitlin Devin in Chicago, Simone Barabo in Miami, and Eva Lorenz in San Juan. And a thanks to our producer, Andrew Constantino, for making our mic sound good. And thank you mostly to you, the listeners. Uh, please log on to DebtWire.com for the latest in distress muni debt coverage. Thank you very much and have a good day.